It was early March 2020 and the world was wondering what was going on with coronavirus and we started noticing our toilet paper sales going up and up and up. Remember that? It was one of the stranger reactions to COVID-19. Australia's first COVID-19 death was reported on the 1st of March 2020 and then the next day we saw our first two cases of community transmission. This was no longer a thing happening to people overseas. And what did we do? We panicked and bought pretty much every single available roll of toilet paper in the country. Initially, we thought, oh, today's going to be a big day. It looks like it's going to be uh, maybe double our usual day. Then we kept an eye on it a few hours later. It looks like it was going to be triple, quadruple. And we suddenly had a massive spike. We were, we were more than 10x our usual sales day. And we were completely sold out in all our sites across the world w- within the day. That's JN Ratnatunga, one of the co-founders of Australian social enterprise Who Gives a Crap? I think it was all happening in parallel with what was going on in the supermarkets. And in fact, I think there was a little bit of a feedback loop going on there where people would go to the supermarkets and suddenly see everything was out of of stock and then jump online. So we saw a huge spike in search traffic coming to our site. It seemed as though there were as many people outraged by the panic buying as there were people actually doing the panic buying. And seriously, why toilet paper? It's not as though COVID-19 was a gastric flu or something. But a toilet paper retailer probably has a pretty good insight into how their customers think. So, was JN surprised? Initially, we were as confused as as anyone else, which was like, why of all things would toilet paper be running out right now? But as we thought about it more, it's sort of, we could understand there was a few things going on. The first one was because it's so big, it would be out of stock on the shelf really quickly because it's hard to put a lot of items on the shelf. So it looks like there's less of it than there really is. Uh, And secondly, it's one of those staple items that feels a little bit more on the survivalist uh, shopping list than than other things. And so people obviously wanted some stability. And at that point in time, nobody really knew what was, how all of the uh, lockdowns were gonna unfold. So it sort of started to make sense why uh, toilet paper was getting so much airtime. In normal circumstances, the way we operate is we make sure we have enough supply at our various warehouses to last a few extra weeks. Um, But generally, we try not to be overstocked because that would really put a strain on our cash flow. So we do manage it to a a level and we're looking at that every week. What Jayhan's talking about there is the so-called just-in-time model of forecasting. It's a common practice, particularly for businesses that sell physical stuff. The last thing they want to do is order too much stuff because storing stuff costs money, or maybe it's perishable or trends change, so it might just go out of favour with customers. Instead, they use forecasting to predict how much of an item they'll need for a limited amount of time. So really just like when you do your grocery shopping. Dry pasta and tinned tomatoes don't perish, but they do take up space in your pantry. So if you make spaghetti bolognese once a week, for example, but it's also your go-to meal when you can't decide what else to make, you might then stock up on a few extra tins of tomatoes and bags of pasta, just so it's handy at any time you want it. But you're not going to buy four bags of pasta every single week if all you ever use is one or two bags a week. 
So, retailers use forecasting and households use forecasting. But who else needs it? And just how much does forecasting predict and mould the world that we live in? This is Seriously Social. I'm Ginger Gorman. And on the podcast today, we are exploring the dark art of forecasting. Going back many centuries, back in the days of Constantine, forecasters were banned. And even only a few centuries ago, about 300 years ago in England, it was illegal to charge money to make forecasts. And the idea was that they were trying to stamp out sort of charlatans in fairgrounds who were ripping people off by, by making money out of their forecasts. But actually, you know, what I do is I do forecasting and some people pay me money to do it. Um, <laughs> so I'm, uh, I'm glad those days are over. Rob Hindman is a professor of statistics at Monash University and also a fellow of the Academy of the Social Sciences in Australia. When Rob goes to dinner parties and tells people he's a forecaster, most people think he's a meteorologist. But forecasting is vital, not just in retail, but in pretty much every aspect of our lives. Take energy, for example. I've done quite a lot of work on energy forecasting, so that's forecasting the amount of electricity that people will use. That's an interesting problem because it's affected by human behaviour. It's also affected by changes in technology as people use different sorts of electrical devices or that there's different sorts of generation capacity. And it's also affected by the weather. On a hot day, people are using air conditioning and so energy rates go up. So there's a few different things that contribute to that, which makes it interesting, I think, from a forecasting point of view to try to untangle the various inputs that might affect energy demand. Why do you think it's necessary in terms of society? Like, why can't we just trot along without knowing how things are going to pan out, without the mathematical models that you're making? Well, in terms of energy uh, demand, it's important both in terms of having the capacity in the short term, making sure that enough energy is being generated so that tomorrow people won't have blackouts. But in the long term, it's also necessary in terms of planning generation capacity. Like, do we need to build another wind farm? Or is there going to be a gap in the supply in 20 years' time based on our current projections? Another really valuable application of forecasting, and one that Rob has been working on recently, relates to COVID-19. But Rob isn't helping retailers and companies like Who Gives a Crap determine how much toilet paper they need in their stores he's actually helping forecast the number of cases for Australia's state and territory governments. Yeah, that's a very interesting problem because we're needing to forecast daily case numbers in each state up to a few weeks ahead. We have a team of people, most of whom are epidemiologists, but includes people like me, who's an expert in forecasting, but not epidemiology. And we have three different models that are being used. One is a epidemiological model, based around the standard SEIR uh, approach to epidemics. Okay, stop there for a second. SEIR stands for Susceptible, Exposed, Infectious, Recovered. Got it? Then we have a model which is agent-based, which is sort of trying to model individual behaviour. And then we have a time series model, which is tries to build a model based on all of the data from other countries around the world, but doesn't take into account the dynamics of the pandemic. So it uses more data, but it has... It's, it's not so smart in some ways. And the three models capture different parts, 
different aspects of how COVID-19 is evolving. And we put them together in a forecasting ensemble so that we get the benefit of all of the three different perspectives on it. And the forecast ensemble is what goes to the state governments and the national government uh, every week to advise them on where we think things are moving and so that they can take appropriate policy responses. Have you got a terrible feeling with something like a pandemic because it's so serious and the outcomes are potentially so serious that you might get the modelling wrong? Well, I mean, when you're forecasting, there's always the chance that you've screwed it up somewhere. Um, (laughs) And uh, when you're doing short-term forecasting, you will know if you've screwed it up because the the reality will come to pass very soon. In the case of the COVID-19 forecasts, even the large Victorian outbreak was within what we thought was possible. So we don't think we've screwed it up. We think we've actually done a reasonable job at predicting the range of possibilities that could occur in each state over the last year. So these are a couple of really valuable uses of forecasting. But how do forecasters plan for unpredictable stuff like once-in-a-century floods or the global financial crisis or this global pandemic, the stuff we like to call black swan events? With a pandemic, it's not a true black swan event because there have been other pandemics in the past. You know, there was the Spanish flu back in 1918, 1919. There's been the the various smaller epidemics such as swine flu and bird flu and so on over the last 20 years. So it should have been expected. The problem is that a lot of planning ignored the fact that there could be such a thing as what we're currently experiencing. So that's interesting what you're saying, that a lot of forecasting doesn't actually take into account possible uncertainties or possible huge shocks or rare events. Exactly. The same thing happened in the global financial crisis. You know, what happened was should not have been unexpected. There have been, you know, the Great Depression. There have been big shocks to the financial systems in the past. But the problem is a lot of people were modelling based on small data sets that didn't take account of things like a major financial shock. And so they weren't taking that into account in their forecasts and weren't taking action based on the the fact that such a thing could occur. I know you also have done a lot of modelling in regard to the pharmaceutical benefits scheme and the federal budget. And I think what's interesting about that is politicians want a certain outcome. So in those sorts of circumstances, are you getting forecasting that's not based on mathematical models, but maybe based upon something else? So parts of the budget are done very well. These days, the pharmaceutical benefit scheme is forecast extremely well. It wasn't the case 20 years ago. There was serious underestimates of the amount of money that needed to be put aside to pay for the PBS. I got involved with that in about 2002 and developed some new models that have been used ever since. And we now have pretty reliable forecasts. They're genuine forecasts in that they're the average of what could happen in a range of futures. But other parts of the budget are clearly not true forecasts. If you look at the forecasts of the balance of payments, for example, against what actually happened for each of the last 15 years, they're almost always optimistic forecasts. And so it would would seem that the Treasury has been asked to provide a level of optimism rather than a genuine forecast. I call these hope casts rather than forecasts. It's what the government hopes would happen rather than what they genuinely believe will happen. 
there's this tricky balance between forecasting what we think will happen based on assumptions on the Chinese economy, the US, on interest rates and all these other things versus getting uh, an optimistic slant on it. I won't call it spin, but an optimistic slant so that the Treasurer can stand up on budget night and say, hey, aren't we good economic managers? We're delivering these sorts of numbers. That's Stephen Kukoulis, formerly the Chief Economist at Citibank and a Senior Economic Advisor to Prime Minister Julia Gillard and now an economics and political commentator. He's been following the hope-casting phenomenon for years. You would probably say that it was the uh, swan budgets in around 2010 or 2011, so just after the GFC. When we had the recovery, Mr Swan, as Treasurer, sort of got up there and said, these four budget surpluses I deliver, quote-unquote, on budget night. And lo and behold, within a few months of that, the economy took a bit of a dip down. That cost a lot of revenue to the bottom line of the budget. Commodity prices actually fell as well. So the things that drive a lot of government revenue, which help create a good budget and help you forecast a good budget position, very quickly unraveled. And that continued with, you know, Joe Hockey, when he was Treasurer in 2013, 14, 15, and of course, probably in the very recent past, most famously, when Treasurer Frydenberg said we're back in the black and he had the, the coffee mugs <laughs> that were printed with the back in the black symbols, forecasting 10 years of budget surpluses and have zero net government debt by 2030. And lo and behold, here we are a little bit out from the next federal budget on May the 11th. And those numbers look like we're heading for government debt of over a trillion dollars. But the thing is, you can't really forecast what a global pandemic is going to do to a budget. That's correct, of course. I think we we need to, for both Mr Swan and to Josh Frydenberg, things outside their control came along. This is the interesting thing about economic forecasting, or any forecasting for that matter. If you put your hand on your heart and you say, this is my best estimate for GDP growth, for unemployment rate, for inflation, for wages, and therefore company profits and the budget bottom line, and along comes a pandemic, along comes a crash in iron ore prices because China does something with its economy, or that undermines even the best intentioned forecasts that are made. Well, you've worked in politics, you've worked inside government. Are these kind of pressures brought to bear on someone like yourself who's sort of a serious economist (laughs) and you're trying to do a decent and true forecast, but then you've got the politics of the day, they may want you to under-forecast, let's call it, or hope-cast? Yeah, that hope-casting is um, (laughs) an interesting concept. I quite like the the notion of it too. But look, in my experience, I spent a few years in Treasury, uh, a few years in uh, Prime Minister Gillard's office, And my observation was that there was not much pressure at all. They wanted to get the numbers right. And if you get the forecast wrong as the treasurer, you look pretty silly. So the pressure has has not been overtly strong to say, hang on, let's just put in a strong number here and make sure that we are forecasting a surplus. But what about that circumstance where, in fact, politicians might under forecast and Uh, say they might ask their numbers people to predict a very small surplus so in fact when there's a big surplus it looks fantastic as a headline in all the Uh, newspapers yes well curiously enough we might even have to go back to uh, peter costello as treasurer 
uh, because if we think back to that period when mining boom Mark I started in about 2002-2003, the budget had just got into approximate balance. There were tiny surpluses. It was basically a balanced budget. And all of a sudden, commodity prices were very, very strong. The Chinese economy was growing at 10 or 11% per annum. Wow. And the nature of their growth meant that they required a lot of raw materials. It was an industrial boom, not a consumption boom, if you like. So all of the construction needed iron ore, energy, steel, the stuff that we produced. And what that meant, the budget numbers were always better. And I think that as we think back to that election campaign in 2004, and even in 2007, the one that Costello and Howard lost, they were talking about, aren't we good economic managers? Because we were only forecasting a surplus of a few billion dollars, and they came in at 20 billion, and we're giving you a tax cut to boot. <laughs> so, um, it, yeah, so in a sense, if you were just a, a casual observer, which most of the electorate are, and you saw tax cut, tick, big budget surplus, tick, and even a bigger budget surplus than we expected or were forecasting, tick. And that's how that narrative, I think, got into our economy, where we, unfortunately, to this day, even though we're a little bit less obsessed than we used to, we've still got this obsession with debt and deficit and um, concerns that big budget deficits are bad, budget surpluses are good, which, of course, is, um, is wrong. While he says it doesn't really make sense to pressure government forecasters to favour optimism over accuracy, he does see it happen within the lobbying industry. That's a, an issue which I find quite disgraceful, to be honest, in most of the time. There are a few exceptions. But for people who are wanting to lobby the government for a particular policy or a tax break or a subsidy, whatever the cause may be, but it's basically getting money into, into their pockets of the uh, people who, who sponsor them. There's been a trend in recent years for those lobbyists to get economics firms to be producing economic forecasts that will give them the outcome that they want. So, for example, you know, what's the economic consequences of putting a price on carbon, for example? Well, some people could come and say, if you're in the coal industry, and you've got one of the wonderful economic consultancies to prepare a report, you would bet your bottom dollar that they'll come up with a report that says, oh, you know, the carbon price is very bad for the economy and therefore we shouldn't have it, even though the coal industry sponsored that research and those forecasts. And again, imagine going to the coal company, going to a consultancy firm in that instance, and the consultancy firm came back and said, well, actually, it's going to benefit the economy to have a carbon price the coal company would say, we didn't pay you to produce that report. We paid you to produce a different report. How much impact do you think reporting like that has on government policy? I think it has some influence. And I look back on the lobbying done for the mining resource rent tax. Think back to the Rudd government, the super profits tax, I think it was called at one stage when they were talking about it. The mining industry got all of these... Um, consultancy firms to produce all these reports saying, oh, it's going to mean the end of the mining industry, we'll be unprofitable, we'll lose thousands of jobs and uh, it's going to really hurt the industry. Whereas we know just recently the um, Parliamentary Budget Office, just in the, in, in the last few weeks, has presented a report that said that if the mining tax, of course the mining tax was abolished when Mr Abbott won the election in 2013, uh, but if the mining tax is still in place and we know at the moment, the iron ore price is staggeringly high, about 160, 170 US dollars a tonne. 
if that tax was still in place, the federal government, even after allowing for payment of company taxes and these sorts of things, would have had an extra $33 billion. And at the moment when we're arguing about childcare payments, the job seeker level, we're arguing about even the budget bottom line, you know, the deficit, $33 billion, that's a staggering amount of money. So that's where one lobby group through what you might call um, dodgy forecasting, dodgy economic modelling, produced a report that struck the nerve of both the politicians, obviously, but I remember seeing the ads on TV, oh, the mining industry, a few people with hard hats and fluoro jackets on, saying how bad that super profits tax was. So it can have a big effect on the community and it can have a big effect on the government. And uh, for the sake of a $30 million advertising campaign from the mining companies, yeah, roughly a decade ago, they've saved themselves $30 billion. If everything from the federal coffers to COVID cases to energy use can be forecast, does that mean that there are a multitude of different types of mathematical models out there that forecasters use? Can there ever be a one-size-fits-all approach to forecasting? You do need to to build a set of models that are appropriate for the thing you're trying to forecast, but it's actually surprising how generic some forecasting methods are. So the methods that I developed for the pharmaceutical benefits scheme are now used by Coles, for example, for retail sales. Both situations have trend and seasonality patterns, and so as you can describe those mathematically and then project them forward, you get a decent forecast. But other things are very different, like the models we're using for COVID-19 forecasting are very different from other models because they're particularly designed to handle the sort of the dynamics of a pandemic rather than, you know, the dynamics of sales or um, fertility rates or something like that. You are really passionate about forecasting for social good. For example, at the moment around ambulances and how many ambulances different communities might need at different times. The work with ambulances is interesting. We're doing some work with the Welsh Ambulance Service at the moment in trying to forecast the daily demand for different types of call-outs. And we're hoping that we can improve the way the ambulance service is run by providing them with better forecasts. Why haven't ambulances got good forecasting? We've needed ambulances forever, as long as they've been wheels, basically. So a lot of organisations use sort of old methods that have been developed yeah, internally over time and have maybe been good enough, but are not necessarily the best they could do. And so one of the things we like to do is to identify problems where they maybe haven't got the resources allocated to that particular area of their business and where we think that the methods that are currently in use could easily be improved. And so we identified emergency call-outs as an area where we think There's good data available, but the data is not being used as effectively as we think it can be. The idea is that we want to be able to forecast the demand in different regions and for different types of problems so that they can have the right ambulances in the right places at the right time. And because we're looking at the range of possible futures that could occur, we're looking at, you know, how likely is it that you would need three um, MICA ambulances in this region Uh, on the weekend. So you're 
we're looking at the, the probabilities and then you try to allocate resources as effectively as possible to minimise the risk to the community. And are you building into that modelling something like a pandemic, which could have a sudden shock and a lot of sick people that you haven't previously expected? Uh, that's a really good question. At the moment, we're just using the data that they've given us, uh, which is only a few years. Uh, but you know, obviously, if there's a major natural disaster, uh, you know, there could be a, a, a mining disaster in Wales, um, there could be an earthquake in some other regions of the world, then you know, there's going to be you know, a whole different range of uh, resources needed that, that our model's probably not going to deal with. For some of the more generalised forecasting activities, Rob has developed open source software. Basically, he built the software when he was doing his consulting work on the PBS and it occurred to him that it might be useful to others in the forecasting community. Well, maybe he should have put a price tag on it because it's been downloaded more than 3 million times and is used throughout the world. Over time, it's become more and more popular to the point where I think it's probably the most widely used forecasting software in the world. It contains the sort of methods that you can apply to a range of situations, but it doesn't contain you know, highly specialised methods that have been developed for, for example, for COVID-19. But the sort of methods that are in there work great for retail sales or for energy demand or for demand for different services. And so any organisation that hasn't got the specialist skills to build their own forecasting models can just take that software and apply methods that have been very widely tested over a very long period of time and know they'll get pretty reliable forecasts. So why did you give it away for free, given that you'd probably be a millionaire by now if you'd asked people to pay for it? <laughs> I don't know that people would have bought it. Um, everybody who needs to forecast should be able to do so uh, without needing a huge amount of money. So organisations who may be non-profit or people who are working in developing countries that are maybe not well resourced financially can still have access to you know, high quality forecasting resources. So how do you forecast for the short term in unpredictable times? It's something that Jane and the team at Who Gives a Crap had to figure out very quickly when their customer base shot up during the toilet paper shortage. But at the same time, it really gave the company a chance to test themselves, to see if they really can be as big as the Aussie startup aspires to be. We have high aspirations for, for the business and so we we always have our sights on getting to, to you know, large numbers of customers. That's the foundation behind the business is if, if you can take a product like toilet paper, which many, many people use and donate a portion of that to charity, then you really do need the scale to be able to solve these big problems in the world. So that was, that really is part of our thinking. So there, there we were, we had just sold out of in every warehouse around the world. And we knew that something completely unprecedented was going on. And the first thing we did was we put up a message on our website to try and reduce the panic that was going on. It was just saying, hey, we're out of toilet paper right now, but you know, join our wait list, we'll let you know as soon as we have any toilet paper. And PS, if you're a subscriber to Who Gives a Crap, we've made sure we've saved enough for you guys. And then we watched this email list slowly grow and we, we thought maybe we'll get a couple 
couple of thousand people um, signing up to it. We ended up getting almost half a million people signing up to that wait list. And the next challenge became how do you then manage this waiting list as we got new stock coming into the warehouse eventually? That became a, a really interesting challenge for us. We built out what we think is a sophisticated model, but you know, I'm, I'm sure there's far more sophisticated modeling going, going on there that looked at a few different constraints that we had. The first one being how much toilet paper we have in each site, uh, each warehouse. The second one being uh, what our logistics team can actually handle. There was sort of a ceiling there that we didn't want to put too much strain on them. And the third one being how much our customer support team could handle because we knew that if we have a lot of spike in sales, it would generate a lot of customer support tickets and we wouldn't have enough staff to to manage those tickets. So we had these three constraints that we were managing to and we would then take the amount of toilet paper we, we had for that particular week and we would email out customers from our wait list just enough so that it would generate enough sales to not trip any of those three constraints. And we did this, it was sort of a daily routine for almost six weeks. I think we were operating the business like that, which I do not recommend to to anyone. That was a time when we asked our company to really dig deep and, and do some really difficult things. But for us, we all recognized as a company that this is a chance to really have a big impact and, and end the year with a really, really large donation. And that really rallied everyone in the company behind this moment, despite all the uncertainty that you know, they were experiencing in their everyday lives. So the thing that we learned and the thing that we're most proud of is that this mission and all to make sure everyone in the world has a toilet, the impact behind our business is both, you know, like a a North Star in in the good times, but it's also a really strong anchor in the more uncertain times. And that was really something we, we never thought about in that way. And it really came through during the panic buying period. Thanks for listening to Seriously Social. I'm Ginger Gorman. If you're enjoying the podcast, make sure you check out our website, seriouslysocial.org.au for more content like articles and videos on the amazing work of Australia's leaders in the social sciences. That's officially it for this season, but keep an eye out for two bonus episodes that revisit our top podcasts from 2020 to find out how the information from those episodes holds up with 2021 hindsight. See you soon.